Gimme Shelter is supported by the James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Feels so weird to record on a Friday. Okay, ready. Okay. Three, two, one. Welcome everyone to Gimme Shelter, the California housing crisis podcast. I'm Manuela Tobias, housing reporter for CalMatters. And I am Liam Dillon, and I write about housing affordability with the Los Angeles Times. And today, Friday, September 24th, 2021, we're going to be talking about one of the nation's hottest housing markets. Surprise! It's Fresno. Yes. Uh, that's, that's your old stomping grounds, Manuela. <laughs> it is. I've been waiting for this episode for a while. So Fresno has actually seen some of the country's highest home price rises in recent years and rising rents. Rents were soaring there even during the beginning of the pandemic as they were dropping in urban areas in other parts of California, like San Francisco and L.A., and they've continued to do so. So we're going to be exploring what's been going on in Fresno that explains these massive hikes in rent and also some of the other housing challenges that are so endemic to the Central Valley. And then we're also going to talk about a couple of big updates on issues we highlighted on recent podcast episodes, just to make sure you're caught up with all the latest news. But when we get to Fresno, we have, as always, the perfect guest to discuss what's going on there. Manuela, tell us who it is. Yeah, we've got Giovanna Morales Tilgren. She's Housing Policy Coordinator for Leadership Council for Justice and Accountability. They're a community-based organization in Fresno, spanning the San Joaquin Valley and the Coachella Valley as well. They advocate for low-income tenants throughout the region on everything from substandard living conditions to polluted air and water. But before we jump into the meat of the episode, we have... The avocado of the fortnight. Our look at the most absurd, weird, strange, crazy housing story that helps explain the California housing crisis over the last couple of weeks. So Liam, where are we going this fortnight? So this fortnight's avocado takes us to Los Angeles. That's your stomping ground. Yes, indeed, where I'm currently stomping my feet at the moment. So this is based on a recent story by my LA Times colleagues, Andrew Corey and Jack Fleming on the new million-dollar home neighborhoods in Los Angeles. Manuela, you might be able to imagine there are a lot of them. Yes, that's why I'm not living in L.A. right now. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just start reading from the piece, and hopefully the avocado-ness will become very clear very quickly. As of July of this year, there were 55 cities and unincorporated areas in L.A. and Orange counties where the typical value of a single-family home was $1 million or more according to a formula devised by online real estate company Zillow. 17 of those places, including Burbank, Fountain Valley, and Torrance, crossed the $1 million threshold during the pandemic. In the city of Los Angeles, 15 neighborhoods have hit the $1 million valuation since March of 2020. In Lamert Park, Woodland Hills, Eagle Rock, among others, a typical home is now valued at a million dollars or more. And just for those who aren't based in L.A., what's something about these neighborhoods that they should know? So these are sort of long time considered like middle class or working class neighborhoods. Lamar Park in particular, you know, among the historic black communities in South L.A. Again, these are neighborhoods that have been known as kind of bastions of 
affordability that now, once you're reaching a million dollars, not so much anymore. One thing that definitely struck me about this story was this one couple who had to beat out 27 offers and 15 counter offers and write a heartfelt letter to get their home alongside $1.175 million for this house in Highland Park. So Liam, who are these people and what are they getting for a million bucks? Right. So I'll just quote from my favorite couple that was highlighted in this piece. Quote, it begins, I don't even have two bathrooms, said Alan Torres, a 34-year-old software engineer, ah, who along with his wife, Vanya, recently paid a little over a million dollars for a two-bed, one-bathroom house in Echo Park. Torres said he and his wife used savings plus a relatively new financial invention. About half their down payment came from the sale of investments in Ether, a cryptocurrency. Well, Alan, let me tell you, I don't even have two bathrooms either. Um, (laughs) (laughs) The cryptocurrency, like, please, please don't tell me that I'm going to have to learn what that is, how it works in order to be able to afford a home here. So uh, I sure hope not, uh, (laughs) because that sounds miserable. But one other thing that I think was interesting and adds to the very ripeness of this avocado, my colleagues found that sort of this other sign of kind of heat, you know, market heat, 10% of all the home sales in LA County this year were for $100,000 over asking price. So our story and one that was also recently in the New York Times that focused on a sort of a similar issue in the Bay Area cited that sometimes this sort of process is an intentional strategy to underprice homes, to kind of gin up bigger bids on those homes. Anyway, all of this to sum up, Really great news for all the would-be home buyers out there in both Northern and Southern California. Amazing, amazing news. So before we dive into learning about Fresno, Liam, do you want to give us a couple of those quick updates on the big topics that we recently discussed? Yeah, happy to. So you listener might have heard that Governor Gavin Newsom a couple of weeks ago crushed, absolutely crushed the attempt to recall him from office, an issue which we went over on our most recent episode. So we will have him for at least another year in office to kick around on his housing promises. And one of the first public actions that the governor took a couple of days after surviving the recall was signing legislation that effectively ends single-family home-only zoning all across the state. That's right. And that's one thing that most of his challengers in the recall opposed. So the governor signed SB9, the single-family zoning bill. So now starting on January 1st, just about all single-family home neighborhoods in the state will be allowed to build at least a duplex or two homes, and in some cases, up to four units. He also signed SB 10, which makes it a lot easier for cities to zone for up to 10 units on single family lots that are near transit. And he also extended a few housing streamlining measures. And one more update, Liam, on one of our recent guests. Yes, our guest on the single family zoning episode, LA City Councilman Kevin DeLeon, announced he's running for mayor of Los Angeles next year. So DeLeon is going to be joining a pretty crowded field. Another council colleague, uh, Joe Buscaino, has announced that he's running. There's a downtown business leader, Jessica Lal. Congresswoman Karen Bass is planning according to our LA Times article just today, this morning, planning to announce that she is going to be throwing her hat in the ring soon. LA City Attorney Mike Feuer. And so we are getting a bit, wow. of a, a bit of a collection of candidates right now. So yeah, definitely lots of hats in that race. On to the main topic of today, and that's what's going on in Fresno. 
So let's just start with kind of some basic Fresno facts. Fifth largest city in California with 525,000 people. So only Los Angeles, San Diego, San Jose, and San Francisco are bigger. That means Fresno is actually larger than cities like Sacramento, Oakland, Anaheim. It's located inland, middle of the state, sort of halfway between Northern California and Southern California on the freeway if you decide to take Highway 99. Pretty close to the Sierra Nevadas. You know, when I visited there for a story I did over the spring, you could see in some spots the Sierra Nevadas, very close to Yosemite as well. And as I mentioned, I was there a few months ago for a story reporting on the crazy housing market. But Manuela, you lived there for a couple of years. So how would you describe Fresno to people that, who are unfamiliar with it? So I actually lived there for two years through April. So I asked my friends for this episode, how would they describe Fresno. And a few of the adjectives that they gave me were underdog, underrated, self-deprecating, melting pot, diverse. And I agree with all of these. So Fresno's population is about 50% Latino, 30% white, 7% black, 13% Asian, second biggest Hmong population in the U.S., huge Mexican community, really vibrant food scene, uh, breweries, art scene. You kind of have to know where to look, but there's a lot of great spots. And it's technically a city, as you said, the fifth largest. But for me, it feels more like a spread out town with no real centralized main strip. There's a downtown, but it's been kind of abandoned and it's now kind of being revitalized. But there's not one central place where everyone congregates. Feels like a lot of smaller towns surrounded by farmland. So those are mostly pretty kind words about uh, about Fresno. Like I've said, I'll defend it to no end. <laughs> uh, but also contextually, we should talk about like the, the agriculturally. I mean, it's really in many ways like the bounty of the entire country comes, you know, in and around Fresno in the Central Valley, you know, almonds, grapes, major crops. It's also just really, really hot mm -hmm. as well. That's part of it. Yeah. And so Fresno County is actually a number one ag producer in the country. Definitely the breadbasket. And something that's kind of shocking there as well is that it's got one of the highest rates of food insecurity. You know, what really struck me when, when I visited there was kind of how bewildering kind of the, and you talked about the central cities area being not necessarily a big gathering place, but it just felt very bewildering to me. You know, I saw homes that were like right next to a working dairy factory and then like close to logistics centers, which were like a half block from like a whole area of vegetable plots. And then there were right near like historic downtown buildings and then makeshift homes within a mile using well water, right? And all of this surrounded like kind of everywhere by freeways. And so it was just like felt so, again, the best word that came to mind to me was sort of bewildering when I was trying to understand the place. And some of those zoning issues, how near some residential areas are to dairy factories or Amazon is actually one of the issues that Leadership Council focuses on. So we'll talk with Giovanna more about that, but yes, Inequality is huge, and the freeways definitely play a big role in that. So the issue that I was reporting on over there was poverty and inequality. Fresno is actually the poorest major city in California. You've got one in three residents living below the poverty line. 
And it depends on where you are. You've got one part of Fresno, which is majority Black, Latino, and Asian neighborhood that's got 12 years less of life expectancy than some majority white neighborhoods in Clovis and North Fresno. So let's like start talking about some of these kind of eye-popping housing numbers. So when I reported my story in March, going back to 2017, average rents for homes and apartments in Fresno was up nearly 39% to $1,289 a month. And that was the largest percentage increase for a big city during that time in the entire country. I found some new one and two bedroom apartments going up in the North Fresno area, as you mentioned, sort of the more affluent area, but they were going for in the mid 2000s to mid 3000s a month, which I can tell you from experience, unfortunately, is what the going rate is for some nice coastal communities here in LA. So it's not just apartments, not just rents. The average home value in Fresno was nearly $300,000, according to information from Zillow. And that was risen almost as fast as rents over the past four years. And Manuela, because I am a great reporter who cares very much about having the most up-to-date and accurate information <laughs> for all Gimme Shelter listeners, of course. I decided to check the stats to freshen things up for just for this episode. So on home values, we're now at $331,000 for the average home. So that's up another 30 grand from just a few months ago. And the average apartment up from 1289 now to 1469 for the monthly rental. And what's so crazy about this, because someone living, for example, in Sacramento might think, well, that's much lower than what I'm paying for. I can certainly say that. But the problem is that incomes in Fresno are much, much lower. And you've got most people employed in ag or other service industry jobs. So the housing affordability situation in Fresno is actually worse than in San Francisco or LA, where prices might actually be much higher because of incomes. For instance, you've got a greater percentage of families in Fresno who spend more than half of their income on rent compared with those in San Francisco or LA. Okay, so let's like get to some of the reasons why these kind of crazy price increases might be happening. So first is people population. Unlike every other big city in the state, Fresno actually had a net increase in population in 2020, despite what the haters might say. People <laughs> were actually coming to Fresno. And perhaps this was from people fleeing higher cost areas, particularly during the pandemic. But that doesn't really tell the full story. What did you find when you reported there, Liam? Well, I also found that like many places in California, um, housing construction in Fresno has slowed, which actually there is a very big change. Longtime politicos and developers told me was that basically forever there was suburban subdivisions, new ones going up along the city's fringes. And then when that stopped, that production stopped during the Great Recession a little more than a decade ago, the sort of region never recovered and construction has not really been the same, either suburban development or sort of more infill development in the area. And another thing from talking to some folks is that there's been some speculation in the city's rental housing stock. You know, I spoke with one very large property manager there who has seen many new investors pick up these sort of four to 10 unit buildings 
jacked up rents by as much as 10%, which then was a signal to everybody else in the neighborhood that that is a price that sort of can be borne. And I think we should know too that Fresno is a huge problem with substandard housing. And you referenced this a little bit earlier. Just recently, one of the city's biggest landlords with manages 3,000 apartments settled a case that involved allegations of roach and mold infestations, collapsed ceilings, corroded pipes. And so you have sort of extreme divide between those who are living in higher end and able to afford higher end apartments and homes and those who are stuck in really difficult situations. And as with any place as well, COVID has only worsened these dynamics. So in June, the San Francisco Chronicle reported 650 evictions in Fresno, which they found to be four times higher than in LA and eight times higher than in San Francisco. And while there's more than $5 billion in rent relief, as we've discussed... Statewide, right. My old Fresno Bee colleagues reported that thousands are still falling through the cracks. So Cassandra Garibay reported the story about Michael Sumaya, a once homeless veteran who borrowed $1,500 from his mom to pay rent in order to stay housed while he waited to hear back from the city's rental assistance program. But because he was paid up with his landlord through borrowing money, by the time he heard back, he no longer qualified for assistance. And now he's in a back and forth with the city and is worried about reentering homelessness come October when the state's eviction protections are set to expire. Yeah, and that story is so infuriating. Just sort of highlights, and we've talked about this a few times in a few different circumstances on the podcast about these eviction protections and the rent relief program, where it doesn't take into account sort of real world situations. We've mentioned a large family in San Francisco who sort of paid up all that was due to their landlord after the wife lost her job and the husband's hours were cut after getting sick with the virus. Once they paid up, they had to move in with the wife's mother, their entire family. And then because they didn't owe anything, right, don't qualify for rental assistance. And you see this, people who don't have formal leases, and that makes it much harder. And in this case, sort of the administration of the program was a big problem. Gentleman you mentioned, right, according to the story, waited six months before he heard whether he was going to get money or not. Of course, you know, adding pressure to why he needed to borrow. And so just another example of this rental assistance funding qualification, despite the money being there as a huge problem with the state's eviction protections set to expire at the end of this month. Even though eviction protections are set to expire come September 30th, the state and local jurisdictions are encouraging tenants to continue applying, tenants and landlords, to continue applying for rental assistance because in order to take advantage of continued protections through March, a tenant needs to prove that they have applied for rental assistance. So apply if you haven't already. That program is going to stay open way past the September 30th deadline of these eviction protections in court. So what you're saying is that if a tenant applies for rental assistance, that could be a defense in court that would prevent them, in theory, from getting evicted through March, even though sort of the firmer, if you will, protections are going to end uh, at the end of the month. Correct. So let's talk to our guest, Giovanna Morales-Tilgren with Leadership Council for Justice and Accountability. 
We are here with Giovanna Morales-Tilgren. She is a housing policy coordinator with Leadership Council for Justice and Accountability. Giovanna, thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, hi. Thank you so much for having me here. I'm very excited to talk to you both. <laughs> so I'll get us started with some questions. First one is just what do you think, Giovanna, is the most important thing people should know about how housing in Fresno works? One thing that I feel people should really know is that there's still a lot of issues here in the city of Fresno when it comes to housing. Not only the affordability crisis, but also the uninhabitability crisis here in Fresno. There are many residents who, even during the pandemic, their rents were constantly increasing. Rents have spiked in the last few years in Fresno, and we got this like hot market. The way we see it is that we feel like a lot of affluent residents were moving in from like the Bay Area and LA because of just those areas having like gentrification issues and housing affordability issues. And so we were seeing a lot of people move in to areas like Stockton, like Modesto, Merced, and Fresno. One thing that the Fresno Bee had reported on was just how they were interviewing some property managers and they were seeing firsthand that people who were moving into those units were from L.A. and from the Bay Area. And many of them were moving because they could work from home and the Central Valley was just like more affordable. It's really interesting you're describing this sort of chain of events where you have high housing costs in Bay Area and Los Angeles, but people making incomes that are higher tend to be higher than those who are in Fresno. And so you have this sort of chain where folks being priced out of the Bay Area in LA, then coming to Fresno and relatively affluent for Fresno. And then because of that, forcing out or displacing folks who were in Fresno, and then that being sort of supercharged, if you will, right, by the fact that people could work from anywhere during the pandemic. Is that sort of the experience that you were seeing on the ground? Yeah, and I feel like what's disheartening about everything is Families are being displaced from their homes. And these are families that have lived in these neighborhoods, in these communities for 10 plus years. And all of a sudden they're being pushed out because prices are going up and people that are living here cannot afford these new prices. And so what does it mean in terms of displacement from Fresno? Because we're seeing people maybe leave the Bay Area for the Central Valley, but where does someone who can no longer afford rent in Fresno go? A lot of the residents that we're talking to are fighting to try and stay in their homes, but those who can't either move in with their family. So you're seeing multiple families living under one roof. Maybe they move to like the rural areas that are less expensive, but that's also an issue where rural areas don't have the infrastructure for new affordable developments. And so you're just kind of seeing them figure it out. And at this point, people are surviving. They're trying to survive in a time where they're not getting the help that they need. And a lot of them are falling through the cracks. 
I want to go back to one thing you mentioned, and this was a counter trend in Fresno compared to other bigger cities, at least during the beginning of the pandemic, where in LA and San Diego and San Francisco, San Jose, rents were dropping pretty significantly, like double digits. But you described a scenario where rents in Fresno were increasing so much that they were sort of being capped at a law that says you can't go up like, what was it, like roughly 8% in the Fresno area? So that was sort of the first year of the pandemic. Now that we're well into the second year of the pandemic, are you continuing to see some of the same like percentage rent hikes that like capped or top level because rents are rebounding in LA and in San Francisco right now. But are we continuing to see sort of growth upon growth right now in Fresno? And what is that doing for the people on the ground that you're working with? I mean, we're still seeing that the rents continue to increase. We had a Know Your Rights workshop via Facebook Live a few days ago, and there were a few residents that were on there. And one of them, actually a few of them, but one in particular was telling us that her landlord gave her a notice They were going to sell the property and she had three months to move out. And that is a trend that we're seeing here in Fresno and the Central Valley, where a lot of the landlords are giving these notices to tenants. And because tenants don't want to go to court, they don't want to have an eviction on their record, they leave. And as soon as they leave, the landlord remodels that unit and sells it, rents it at a higher price. And the prices continue to skyrocket and continue to increase here in Fresno. And these families can't afford it. And so they have to find other affordable housing. And that's another problem because in Fresno, there is a wait for subsidized housing. Folks are waiting like years to find something. And so in the meantime, where are they supposed to go? I remember when I was at the B and covered Section 8 vouchers for people who couldn't afford basically the rent. And even after getting off the wait list, which was a couple years long for some people, then they would run up against the problem of not being able to use their vouchers because landlords wouldn't accept them. And the housing market was just so competitive that they could choose not to accept. And now that kind of income discrimination is no longer legal. But I'm sure that you still sometimes run into this type of problem of people just not finding enough housing to actually afford, let alone on a voucher. Liam and I talked about inequality and how different parts of Fresno look and also the affordability in those areas. Could you talk a little bit about new housing? Where exactly is it being developed? And do you see cost increases maybe varying depending on what part of Fresno you live in? I mean, Fresno has a history of redlining, segregation, low-income people of color tend to live south of Fresno, and more affluent folks tend to live in Clovis and North. And unfortunately, many of the new housing developments that are being built are being built north of Fresno. And so because they're very expensive, I mean, there's some apartments, one bedroom apartments that go for like $2,000. 
which is like <laughs> LA Bay Area status. No one can afford a 2001 bedroom here in Fresno. It's ridiculous. And so they were left with <laughs> choosing apartments here in like South Fresno that are not habitable. Just a quick example of how horrible it is. We work with a resident here in Fresno and she's been living in this apartment for years and the landlord wanted to fix the plumbing. And so they made this huge hole on her wall to get to the plumbing and they fixed the plumbing, but then they never patched up the hole. And the hole is the size of a poster board because that's what she's using to cover up the hole. She's constantly messaging the manager and the landlord and no one's getting to it. And she's had this for over six months and they will not fix it. And they've given her the option of moving to another unit, the remodeled unit, but then she would have to pay more rent. So these are the options. And what about code enforcement? How active is the city on cracking down on these types of issues, which we know to be pretty rampant? I know that there have been some changes being done with code enforcement, but The other issue is that residents are too scared. They're too scared to report and have someone from the city come in and look around, mostly because of retaliation. A lot of these folks are undocumented and they don't want trouble. They don't want trouble. They're fine, like as long as they can be there and have a place to live. It is what it is, unfortunately. But no one should have to live in fear of deportation or losing a home because they have like an infestation of cockroaches or rodents or black mold. And I think the city could do more, particularly in the outreach that they should be doing with residents and letting them know that it is safe. But I feel like that also comes with another issue of like, okay, Folks should be able to feel safe enough to call code enforcement. And if there is retaliation, they should feel safe enough and have the option of being protected when they go to court, meaning right to counsel, having someone represent them, knowing their rights. So it does entail a lot of other resources that they need. We want to talk a little bit about the implementation of the COVID rental assistance program in the city and in the region. We discussed in Manuel and I's portion of the show, this scenario that was outlined in a recent article in the B, a veteran who waited six months for money, then borrowed from his mom to pay his rent with his landlord. Now he owes his mom $1,500 and was told by the city he no longer qualifies for rental assistance because he's current or paid up with the landlord. So like, that's obviously a horrible situation, right? In scenario. How bad is it in Fresno right now with how this rental assistance program is working? I mean, the city has distributed a lot of the funds. Not enough, though. And they are not reaching the folks who need it the most. Just a few days ago, when we were having this Know Your Rights workshop, we're talking about the rental assistance program, and they're like, oh, that sounds great, but I can't apply because I'm undocumented. We're telling her, no, you can't apply. Everyone qualifies. This is for everyone. And she was shocked. And she was like, well, I I thought we couldn't apply. If I knew, I would have applied a long time ago. And so, again, there is not enough outreach being done. They are not reaching the residents that need it. 
that's just one issue. The other issue is the fact that they need help paying perspective rent and current rent. And the city is not doing that. They don't need help for the past 12 months. They need help now and for the next three months because they have been paying and the city hasn't done anything about that. And we're seeing a lot of residents that still don't know about the assistance or are misinformed about the requirements like documentation. And there's still a lot of barriers. They're still asking for too many documents. We've been hearing from other states that are accepting a lot of like self-attestations for everything. Basically saying like, yes, perhaps under the penalty of perjury or just being able to say it yourself without having to prove it, for instance, with like pay stubs or whatever, that you are in fact qualified for low income. Correct. A lot of states are accepting that and the city of Fresno is still not doing that. They may be doing it for some reasons, whether it's you've been impacted by COVID, but Most people don't have those documents or can't get them or don't want to ask their landlord because if they ask their landlord, the landlord's going to kind of look at them like, why can't you pay rent? And what if they're going to try to evict me because they know I can't pay rent? So there's just a lot of problems with the emergency rental assistance program here in Fresno that still needs a lot of work. One of the things that you're reminding me of is that access to legal services and just how challenging that is in the Central Valley. Could you explain a little bit what access is like for a typical tenant who might actually face an eviction? Or I remember reporting on how much more likely it is for someone to self-evict because they just don't really know what they might be privy to under the law. Unfortunately, many tenants are not aware of their rights, and particularly tenants that may not speak English. As soon as they get this notice, you need to leave or an eviction notice, they think that's the eviction process. I get this letter on my door and I have to leave. And it's actually really complicated (laughs) and it's complicated on purpose. And they don't understand that there is a process. Once you get this letter, then you get served, you have to go to court, you have to stand in front of a judge. And so that's one of the problems. And so that is why tenants think that once they get this paper, that's their eviction. That's why we are doing these series of like know your rights workshops. So people, tenants are aware of their rights and for them to know that the only person that can give you an eviction is a judge. That is the only person that can do that. When we did say that, some of them were a little surprised and they were like, oh, well, but my landlord gave me this piece of paper. And so, no, like that's the eviction. And the other struggle with that is they choose not to go to court also. So somewhere like L.A. or the Bay Area, you have 120 residents per attorney. In the Central Valley, you have... 400 residents per one attorney. That's more than double. And here in the Central Valley, there's probably about one or two legal aid organizations that work throughout this region. And they do not have the capacity to help everyone. And not only that, because of the grants that they receive, they are unfortunately limited on who they can help and they cannot help undocumented people, which unfortunately 
always seem to be the ones that need the most help. So eviction protections, many of the biggest ones statewide expire at the end of September, September 30th. What do you expect to happen, you know, come the end of this month with sort of the housing situation? This is something that we as advocates are fearing. I can tell you that our trepidation comes from all of the landlords who will ignore the safety provisions in AB 832. So that's the eviction protection law. Correct. Uh Uh And Uh they will move forward with eviction cases starting October 1st. And unfortunately, we are seeing that many of the judges and councils are not aware of (laughs) these safety provisions and will allow these evictions to move forward. And just to talk a little bit about the safety provisions, if a tenant couldn't pay rent and applies for the emergency rental assistance program, and let's say they're waiting, it's still pending, if the landlord gives them an eviction notice and they go to court, technically the judge can't move forward with that eviction. And they have to show proof though, that there is a pending application. And so we're afraid that this is not going to happen and judges are just going to move these evictions forward without asking or (laughs) looking into things. So that is something that we are definitely dreading. And just to give some quick stats, there was a study done where it shows that 73% of landlords have legal representation compared to only 1% of tenants. And so we really have to work to make sure that tenants are aware of their rights in case this happens and they do end up in court. And because they don't want to go to court, our fear is that they're just going to start self-evicting. What we reported earlier this year at CalMatters on evictions, although we didn't get data specifically for Fresno, we found that while other counties had had further protections, particularly in the Bay Area, with courts, for example, and sheriff's departments being quite active in preventing evictions from moving forward. The many Central Valley counties relied solely on the state's protections, which led to a lot more evictions than in, for example, the Bay Area. So just one last question is what advice would you give to tenants and landlords come September 30th? I think it's really important for tenants to apply for the rental assistance program. And if they are encountering any issues with the application, they should reach out to to nonprofit organizations out there doing the outreach and helping residents apply. They should know that there are still some safety net provisions after September 30th. Mostly is that they have rights. For us, housing is a human right. Everyone is allowed and should have the ability to stay housed during a pandemic. I still believe we're in a pandemic. They have the right to have these resources that were allocated to their jurisdictions. And I just hope that they are able to access it and reach out to anyone. We at Leadership Council are always happy to help and direct them to the correct place, but definitely know that everyone has that right to be housed. All right. Well, thank you very much for this conversation. We appreciate it. Thank you. I really appreciate it. And glad I was able to share a little bit about the Central Valley. (laughs) Thank you, Giovanna. 
So thank you for listening. If you like what we do every couple of weeks, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and other podcast services. This is important so that we get kudos and likes that make our days better, number one. And number two, it helps new people to discover us. Our editor extraordinaire is Victor Figueroa. Victor, thanks as always for your great work. I am Liam Dillon with the LA Times, and my Twitter handle is at Dylan Liam. And I'm Manuela Tobias from Cal Matters, and my Twitter handle is at Manuela Tobias M. Thank you all for listening. 